Okay, yeah, we're challenged today. Let me see if I can do this. Yeah, we're good, good, okay. Um, not quite five years ago, Mike Halpin did a series that he entitled, God Hates. Okay, kind of sounds like a message that you might hear at a little church in Westboro, doesn't it? Uh, and you see, m many people believe that the concepts of God and hate are mutually exclusive. But God does hate certain things. And the, the titles that I looked up for Mike's several messages were God hates haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that show, shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wickedness, feet that run to evil, false witnesses, and those who sow discord. And even if you can accept the concept that God is capable of hate, you might be surprised that he hates something else. The world. Now, if you're one of those who read your Bible, there ought to be alarm bells going off in your head. Or even if you went to a professional sporting event maybe a decade or so ago before this was banned, you might have looked up that verse that said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah. So, but today, our passage includes, in part, the instructions, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James pipes in likewise. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy with God. Okay, we're going to come back to that apparent contradiction in a little bit, but first I'd like you to take your pew Bible so we can all be on the same page and turn to 1 John 2. We're going to do what we've done the last two or three times here in talking about this passage in 1 John about that you may know. That's the purpose of the book of 1 John. And if you've read this passage before, verses 12 through 17, you may have been confused. What does the first part have to do with the second part? Because in the first three verses, it talks about different groups that he addresses. And in the second part, he talks about the love of the world. But if you think about it, all of us are his children and therefore part of his family and therefore the issue of our affections is related. And so... If you've turned there to 1 John 2, we're going to read together uh, verses 12 through 14 for right now. Are we ready? Let's start. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, 
because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, keep your finger there. We're going to come back to this passage in just a little bit. Um, But in this letter, in this part, John tells three groups that he's writing to them. And he says it twice, I think, for emphasis. Uh, These groups are really not based upon chronological age. He uses the term children. But you can tell by the context that he's talking about young believers, not five-year-olds. And instead... These are all believers at different stages of spiritual maturity. So there's new believers, there's young maturing believers, and then there's those who are further down the the narrow road in their faith. And so he starts with encouragement. And the first thing he does is that he tells us as encouragement that we are forgiven. This is a basic truth that all believers should understand, that we're forgiven for the sake of the name of Christ. So that's referring to the person and the work of Christ on the cross. You know, at Christmas time, we often hear that the angel said to Joseph that you will have a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we studied in 1 John chapter 1, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. This is a huge encouragement to us all to know that we as believers are forgiven and that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe, as it tells us in Proverbs 18. Then, In verses 13 and 14, John says a couple of other things. First of all, he says that we know the Father who is from the beginning. You know, later in John 2, verse 23, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So accepting Christ as your Savior means we get a heavenly father with that. And John starts with the fathers in the faith who know him who is from the beginning. And John seems to always start the same way. In John 1.1, the gospel, it's in the beginning. In 1 John 1.1 is that which was from the beginning. Now, whether he's referring to God the Father or God the Son is immaterial because they're both God. Uh, but John makes the very same statement here in verse 14 for emphasis because it's important. Those who have been in the faith longer will know him better and have a deeper relationship with him. John tells little children that they know their father. This is a wonderful reference to the fact that at salvation, we're no longer fatherless. We're no longer orphans. Rather, we are adopted as his children children of the Heavenly Father. Secondly, see if I can get this right. There we go. He says we are victorious. He talks about young men to address those who are well beyond spiritual infancy and who are engaged in the daily battle against the evil one. This warfare hardens and strengthens them. 
which means they're growing, they're maturing in their faith. So John says that these warriors are strong, the word of God abides in them, and they have overcome the wicked one. You know, Satan attacks us in a couple of ways. Uh, he uses a carrot and a stick. The stick is his accusations about our sins that cause us to be discouraged with guilt. And the way that we deal with that is to consider Christ's work on the cross. Remember, he paid the price for our sins on the cross. And he, because of that payment, removes our guilt once we confess. Paul reminds of this in Romans 8. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the carrot is temptation. And when he does this, the defense is to turn to God's word, also known as read your Bible. Okay? This is what John refers to when he says that the word of God abides in you. And so the encouragement John gives here in these two verses is that the work of Christ and the word of God empowers us to overcome the evil one. Okay, would you turn back, open up your Bibles to 1 John 2 again, and... Uh, John turns from encouragement to exhortation and then a warning about what John calls the world. So let's read there. We're going to read verses 15 through 17 together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Oh, let's turn back to this question about whether God loves or hates the world. Because we just recognize that it, John, same author, said God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the first question we should ask as good students or theologians is, is the word world there in those two situations the same Greek word? And behold, yeah, it is. It's the word cosmos. No difference there. So, we next turn to the three great rules of interpretation, which are, Context, context, and context, okay? So, when we look at this, we study the surrounding verses, we find another difficulty because uh, it says in verse 2 of chapter 2 that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, which is not the world that he hates, certainly. Uh, and in John 3.16, the world includes all the people who believe on him who receive everlasting light. But when we look at this verse in the middle of 1 John 2, we see he's referring to the, quote, things of the world. What kind of things? Well, verse 16 tells us the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. So generally what we can say about these things of the world are that they're temporal, they have no eternal value, but more importantly, 
all these things take our attention away from our Father. Now, this gets us to the term worldliness. And that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? You see, if worldliness was a legal term used in a criminal statute, it would likely be found to be unconstitutionally vague. Okay? Now think about this for yourself. Okay? Uh, how many things have you considered worldly? You know, there are probably as many different interpretations of that as there are Christians. Because when we see things that conduct or words or, or something that we don't like, we tend to associate that with worldliness. And understand, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. We all kind of make those small judgments, which we shouldn't. However, we should all be able to agree that certain things really are of the world. And so, uh, what John calls the things of the world are those values, thoughts, and conduct that are truly inconsistent with God's word and his will. Uh, clearly, this would include slavery or addiction to drugs or alcohol, uh, uncontrolled appetite, sexual deviancy, and any obsession with things that do not last forever. Because we know the world's going to burn up, but God will reign in his kingdom forever. And of course, there's always that pesky little thing called pride. So John warns about promises that the world makes, but it cannot deliver. So what are some of the things that the world can't deliver? The first is what we need. In verse 15, all of us have this deep desire to love and be loved. But who and what we love has a direct correlation on our ultimate fulfillment. And John understands this basic truth. He tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. So it's clear John, not, John's not referring to the people of the world, but rather those things of the world which distract our attention from the Father. Why does he warn us of this so much? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if, you're, if your love and attention is on the things of the world, then your priority or your treasures lie there. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, not to lay up treasures on earth because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he's even more than direct than that. He says, no one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or else you'll, you'll uh, cling to the one and despise the other. Uh, you simply cannot serve God and money, or the world's things. So, which love do you really want? The love of the world is fleeting and fickle, but the love of God is forever. Psalm 136 tells us his steadfast love endures forever. The next thing that the world offers but can't deliver is what it promises. The world promises to give us all that we might desire. And these desires are actually weapons used against us. 
that masquerade as promises. And verse 16 reveals the weapons the world uses to conquer or overwhelm people of the world. Now, where do we find these weapons? Inside. Each one of us. So, this started in the beginning. In the garden. When we, when we see the fall in Genesis 3. It says there that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Desire of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Desire of the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Pride of life. We see a similar thing in, in Luke chapter 4. It reca- you remember there where uh, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness? And uh, he's defeated these weapons uh, during his temptation. The desire of the flesh was defeated after Satan urged him to turn the stone into bread. Desire of the eyes when he showed him all the kingdoms that he could have. And finally, the pride of life was defeated when Satan tempted him to throw himself down and test his father's protection. Let's take a little closer look at at each of these weapons. A word that could be used to describe desires of the flesh would be appetite. Okay? Now, if you read the King James, it uses the word lust instead of desire. And that would give us the sense that this desire is always bad. But the word used in the, in the, in the ESV that you've got in front of you there is desire. And think about it. Desires are not always negative. It's a neutral word. And it includes lust and passion and, or just cravings. So it is positive or negative based upon its object. One can have a godly desire, a passion to serve. That's okay. Here, the object is flesh. But again, flesh is a neutral or a negative term. Example, Jesus came, suffered, and died in the flesh. So it's, that's a good thing. But in this particular passage, the word flesh refers to the tendency we all have to fulfill our natural appetites in a way that God forbids, also known as sin. For example, I think we can agree that food and sex are gifts from God, right? But an uncontrolled appetite for food can lead to gluttony. An uncontrolled appetite for sex can lead to immorality and deviancy. You can see how that works. It all gets back to our sin nature. We are not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. It's part of the DNA that we receive from Adam. And we're attracted to it. God goes through John to tell us that uh, it's to take us away from these desires because they're not from the Father but from the world. This is exactly what Mike was talking about in the Sunday school this morning, this internal battle. Uh, desires of the eyes might be, you, might be summed up in the term affections. Now, does anybody think this guy not only has a spiritual problem, but he's going to face another problem in just a, maybe a couple of seconds? <laughs> Now, I actually use this slide because uh, 
That's got to be Hannah No. That's what you're all thinking, right? Is that you, Hannah? Did you pose for this? I mean, I was, I was astounded, yeah. Okay. Now, remember, the desires of our eyes are, are related to our affections, and there's nothing evil about eyes. However, our eyes are the portals or windows through which sinful desire enters our mind. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, to look at a woman with lust is the same thing as adultery in your heart. And so, he recommended that if you can't conquer that, it's better that you pluck that eye out rather than have your whole body to be cast into hell. And just to be honest here, this is especially true of men who are more visual, okay? Uh, but I'm guessing that women have desires of the eyes as well. I'm just guessing here. And the word Pinterest comes to mind, but there are probably many other things that you can confess of yourself. Instead... Paul reminds us how we combat the desire in Colossians 3. If you seek, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Pride of life might be summed up in the word ambition. You guys know that guy? All right. Now, pride can be very subtle, even undetectable. Therefore, it's likely more common in us than we might imagine. Now, outright boasting and arrogance, you know, probably none of us would, would admit to that, but there's little ways that pride can creep into our hearts in ways that can affect our relationships and our attitude. Uh, you've heard the term vainglory, or maybe you haven't. It's an old word, which I understand uh, really focuses on seeking attention for things that really aren't true. It's being a fake. But even worse is outright pride for actual achievement, possessions, or strengths. And what makes pride so corrosive is that it takes away from the source of our gifts and abilities and, and talents and it puts it on me. It is literally a form of idolatry. Whether it's pride over power, prestige, or possessions, or position, or pedigree, it all amounts to worship of self. And any worship that's not directed toward God is idolatry. So we need to follow the right example here. And as to pedigree, Jesus was born into a, a poor family to a woman who wasn't fully married. He, he came up as a son of a carpenter. His possessions, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Prestige, he was known as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Power and position, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In short, he demonstrated the opposite of pride as an example for us, humility. It says in Philippians 2, 
Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, and he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The last thing that the, the world promises but cannot deliver is that which will last. And verse 17 gives us this ultimate reality, the cold, hard one, that the world and its false promises, they're all going to end. Now, this is true on several levels. Of course, the, the Word of God says that the world is going to end. But as I've gotten older and experienced different things, and when I consider the things that I, my tendency is to kind of cling to certain things around me that I, you know, I get used to, whether it's my family or my church or, uh, or you know, kids' sports or, or uh, you know, at the Christian school or homeschooling groups or whatever, and it all changes. You young people maybe have an experience of this, but everything changes over time. That's just in a temporal sense. But in a final sense, we all know from our objective experience that our lives are all going to end. So there's an, one way or the other. Nothing in this world, as far as we're concerned, is going to last. And if our attention, our priority is on the world, that means we find our treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. These treasures that we experience on earth, they may not even, probably won't even last a lifetime. Does that choice make any sense? The world can deliver nothing beyond itself. And for the non-Christian who believes that this is all there is, there's nothing to look forward to, really has no purpose to life beyond itself. On the other hand, if you recognize that the universe and our world and our very lives are way too complicated to be derived out of nothing with no purpose, beyond life itself. And that leads us to the conclusion that there has to be a creator who has a purpose for us beyond this world. So, the major question for us all concerning the end is which will each decide? To make a decision is unavoidable. The word decision is made up of de and scission. And that root scission means to cut. That's where we get the word scissors. So an incision is when you cut into something. De means away or from. And that means when you make a decision, you cut away all other options. Jesus said, of necessity, a 
a decision will be made between two paths in life. And he said that many will choose the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. Only a few will choose the straight or the difficult gate and the narrow way that leads to life. He then, in that same passage in Matthew 7, talks about the good and the bad trees with good and bad fruit, respectively. And he says, you will know where somebody is by their fruit. Next, he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And in verse 17, John repeats God's promise that whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, has eternal life. Now, John is not saying here that doing is earning eternal life. What he is saying is that if you love the world, you will perish with the world. But if you love God instead of the world, as a result of that love, you will do his will and you'll live for him, with him forever. And you will know where you are, what path you're on by your fruits. Again, uh, this is uh, exactly what Mike was talking about in Sunday school today. If I wanted to uh, lift Mike and me up, I would say we coordinated this, but I had no idea what he was going to teach about. And so I've asked, I've asked, literally what Mike did this morning is the practical application of this message. So I've asked Josh to see if we can save it. If you, want to, if you weren't able to be here, you should be here for Sunday school <laughs> because it's good. But if you, if you weren't able to be today, uh, hopefully we'll get that on the website and you can listen to it because it's vitally important to how we carry this out. Uh, Jesus, I think on your sheet there, maybe you've got some verses in John. He spoke about doing the will of his Father often because it was his purpose. And the work of Jesus on earth was lasting and effective because it was his Father's will. If we're going to be effective in our work, we cannot be distracted by the things of the world. We've got to focus on the will of our Father. Please remember, the alternative is not pleasant. Back in Matthew 7, Jesus warns that when the day of judgment comes, and that's when the decision you have made, intentionally or unintentionally, cannot be changed. Many will call him Lord and say, didn't we do wonderful things in your name? I personally believe these are primarily people who are attending church and think they're saved, but they're just going through the motions without genuine faith and not doing the will of the Father. And what he says to them is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of course, a decision has to be made before that day. Thing is, we don't know when it comes. It could be in our next breath. To not accept Christ as your Savior and to not love God is a decision. Now, uh, there are clear differences resulting from those decisions on a practical level. And I've listed a few um, on your study sheet. You can take a look at that when you can. There's a 
little-known New Testament character named Demas. And when Paul refers to certain faithful workers in his letter to the Colossians, he adds, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So from what we can tell, Demas was actually participating in the ministry and helping out in some way. There's not much said about him. But later, when Paul is imprisoned again and he's about to die, he writes this in 2 Timothy 4. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, at some later time, we can address whether Demas was saved. But for now, we should all recognize that the world makes many attractive promises. And doing good things, as Demas apparently was, is not a safeguard against the world's seduction. It is a good thing to do good things, to enjoy the world and his creation and all that it brings into our lives. But we must not fall for the false promises of this fallen world. We must allow, we must cannot allow the attractions of this world to distract us from our first love. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And uh, on your study sheet at the bottom of the second page, I put some questions that you might consider either individually or in a group. Um, and then if you can, if we can get it on the website, uh, listen to Mike's Sunday School from this morning for some great practical applications. We started this message with the startling statement that God hates the world. That is, the things of the world that distract us from Him. Thankfully, we also know that God loved, so loved the people of the world that he gave his only son as sacrifice to pay for our sins, to work out his perfect justice with perfect love. And remember, the faithful love of, of the Father for us is so great that he overlooks our unfaithfulness and gives repentant and contrite hearts who genuinely believe in him, in his son as Savior, and eternity. Those are the ones who truly will do his will. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the clear word of God that tells us you loved us. You loved us so much. You recognize that we're poor fallen sinners, but yet you sent your son to the cross to die for us. Help us to understand that we must keep our focus on you. We must not love the world, instead love you. We must love the people of the world as Jesus did and does. Lord, help us to have the right focus in our lives. Help us to apply this in our lives. Help us to be wholly consistent with your will for our lives. We just give you all praise and glory now. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.